One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing now? Uh, year 6 to 8, heading out with uh, Bertie and James. In case you haven't met, my name's Ben. I'm one of the ministers here at uh, Harrington Park Anglican. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open at that chapter that uh, Rob just read for us, Luke 6, beginning verse 12. And uh, it'll become apparent, but we really do need some serious prayer for this one, so let me lead us uh, in our time together uh, with uh, prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, that you've not left us to ourselves, but you've given us your revealed word. Uh, Father, as uh, uh, some of the very strong things that Jesus said this morning are uh, Uh, come into our ears, may they uh, also come into our hearts, may we not shy away from hearing uh, the hard message, but delight and rejoice uh, that your word uh, disciplines, corrects us. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul teaches us that the scriptures, the words in this book we call the Holy Bible, that they are there to teach us and to train us in righteousness. That's what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And they are also there to correct and to rebuke us. And that's because learning and growing in true faith does not happen when only the positive is affirmed, but also when the negative is condemned. To properly teach truth, you must also point out error. That is why, when the time comes for me to teach my boys how to shave, not only will I be saying the blade is to go up and down, but I'll also make sure that I'll definitely be saying it is never to go from side to side. I won't have properly taught them the positive until I've taught them the negative. 
Because as you teach error, as you point out the negative, you actually point out or affirm or show something about the importance of the positive, of doing things the correct way. Again, I couldn't help myself. Juvenile Ben strikes again. It so happens that I found a rather amusing example of pointing out (laughs) the negative to affirm the positive, which I share with you for no other reason than I think it's downright hilarious. (laughs) There are a whole bunch of these I found, eh? They're awesome. When Paul preached the gospel, the Apostle Paul, when he preached the gospel, reread that he was both teaching and admonishing. And admonishing is just a big fancy word that basically means warning. He gave the positive and the negative. To preach the gospel itself actually involves upholding the positive and denouncing the negative. You haven't preached the gospel unless you've done both those things. Part of affirming what is right means you must be rejecting that which is wrong. Now, for the past few months, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel. Luke has written his gospel to give his readers certainty of uh, what they've been taught about Jesus and the gospel. And Luke knew that people were always going to oppose the truth. And it's so clear and so obvious that he presents his account in such a way as to both affirm the truth and, therefore, condemn the error. Now, I want to be straight up with you all and say that in today's passage from Luke, I think we're looking at basically a 50-50 split of both positive and negative teaching, and that the negative teaching, I think, is both a cutting rebuke to us, by which I mean you as I point the finger, and me as the three other fingers point back, that's us, and also lots of other church groups, church teachings, church institutions. Now, I recognise that there is a fine line between confidence and arrogance, between loving correction and pride-filled one-upmanship. But I want all of you to know that it's my hope, and it most certainly has been my prayer this week, let me tell you, that as I seek to bring the Word of God to bear upon our lives this morning, that none of us would shy away from things just because they're negative or because they're confronting, and that as you listen and as I hope this is definitely always the case, that you remember that anything I say, anything any preacher says, is to be weighed and measured in accordance with what God says in His Word, the Scriptures. That's why we have open Bibles. We've got them on the pews. That's why we've got communication cards. I am not the final authority. God's Word is, and you are always free, always free to question, to challenge anything that gets said by appeal to the Word of God, the Scriptures. So having said all that, let's actually look at what's in here. We're going to begin, if you're a note taker or you like to follow along, there's an outline, uh, a sermon outline in uh, uh, the bulletin you were handed. We're at point one and uh, just to bring us up to speed, last week, if you remember, we saw that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had began to plot what they might do to Jesus. It sounds ominous because it is. There's even a hint that they're thinking about killing Jesus. You remember, if you were here last week, 
Uh, Jesus, before he healed that dude's hand on the Sabbath, he said, what's lawful to do good or to evil, to save life or to destroy it? Well, God, uh, Jesus uh, restores the life, so presumably the Pharisees and the teachers of the law fall into the other category. They're thinking about, we're going to kill him. So when we read our first verse, verse 12, it was one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. It's kind of, it seems natural that, to think he'd be praying something along the lines of, God, there's these Pharisees and the teachers of the law and they want to kill me, please help me. If I knew people were after my life, they want to destroy me, I'd spend the night praying to God, something like that. But if I had to guess, I don't know this for sure, but if I had to guess, I'd say that was not what Jesus would have been speaking to God about that night. The reason I think that is because of what we read in the next verse, verse 13, it says, When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles. And then we have the, the 12 apostles named. Now, it's easy to read that and think that's just a little bit of sort of historic detail. But this is an extraordinarily significant thing that Jesus does in his ministry. I'll show you why that's the case. Once upon a time, centuries before this, the prophet Moses went up on a mountain and he had a big chat with God. God gave Moses the constitution, the arrangement between God and his people Israel. God was officially establishing his people Israel as Moses was up there speaking to God on the mountain. And Israel was made up of 12 tribes. And each tribe was allotted a certain part of, of the land, right? That was a very big moment in Israel's history. What Jesus is doing here, by speaking to God, then choosing 12 of his disciples to become apostles, and then coming down the mountain, that's a very obvious and deliberate parallel with what God was doing through Moses. Jesus, in his selection of 12 apostles is reconstituting the true people of God. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're not the true Israel, they're busy plotting how they're going to kill somebody on the Sabbath. True Judaism would become the religion of the apostles. This is a big and bold move by Jesus, which is why I think he spent the night speaking to God. So now that Jesus has begun reconstituting Israel, What's the arrangement going to be? What's the constitution? What's the covenant? What's the laws? What's the setup? What are their regulations now that he's redefining the people of God? Well, that's what we see in the, the, the section that follows. But the section begins by setting a scene, and it sets an extraordinary scene. Uh, you see, it so happens at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus happened to have the most brilliant platform upon which he could address his followers in order to teach them the constitution for the reformed people of God. The scene is set from verse 17. Read with me from verse 17. It says, He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming out of him and healing them all. When it says great number there, it really means great number. It was too much for anyone to count. There was no way of counting. So what Luke does instead is he tells us the geographic locations from where all these crowds 
have come. So Tyre and Sidon are about as far north as it gets, and Judea and Jerusalem is about as far, far south. Now, I did a bit of a Google map comparison, right? We're basically talking about Gosford and Wollongong. Similar distance, right? People have come. This is millions of people. This is a serious crowd. We're looking at the first New Testament mega church. Now, put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples who had just been chosen to become apostles. They're walking down the mountain to the guy who's had the most successful ministry the world has ever known. The millions have flocked. This is the ultimate ministry success. That first New Testament era megachurch and the apostles are there thinking, holy moly, we've made it. We backed the right horse. This is the biggest and most successful movement ever. Look at the people power. We could easily overthrow the Roman Empire and declare ourselves an independent nation state. And look at all the, the healing. Jesus, whoever touches him, the evil spirits go and the, the sickness goes. This is, this is glorious. But Jesus doesn't really make anything of all this. Instead, and this is really, really great him, instead the first thing he does is to make absolutely certain that his followers realise this is definitely not what the kingdom of God looks like now. What Jesus is actually doing here is giving them a foretaste of what the kingdom of God will look like then, in the future. What's happening here is not to be the normal experience nor the normal expectation of people that are in the kingdom. It's a foretaste of what eventually will be the case. For now, the normal experience of following Jesus looks anything but glorious. It's basically the polar opposite to what they're seeing. But don't take my word for it. Look how Jesus explains it. Verse 20, looking at his disciples. He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep Now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. If I was one of those disciples, especially if I was one of those chosen to be an apostle, I'd be thinking to myself, wow, I'm part of Jesus' ministry staff team. The people are going to love me. From now on, we'll never have a dull moment. And yet, hear the words of our Lord and Saviour. He calls us and them blessed when other people exclude, insult, call us evil. He calls us blessed when we suffer. And that's because for those who truly are in the kingdom, their experience now will be very different from the experience of heaven. Jesus wants to make sure his disciples won't make the very tempting mistake, it's a very tempting mistake, to think that all the health, the wealth, the peace, the satisfaction, in other words, the glory of God's heavenly kingdom is the normal experience of Christians now 
rather than at his return. Now, does this mean Christians are always sort of like the half-glass-empty kind of people? Are we always to be wailing and bemoaning our pathetic existence and basically being the saddest people on it? No, not like that. I mean, for a start, this is one part of God's Word, and elsewhere in the Bible, we're actually told about great benefits in this age for the followers of Jesus. I mean, we're enjoying one of them right now. One of Jesus' many blessings is the gift of us to one another. Church is a family, according to Jesus. Some people have to leave their families of origin in order to follow Jesus, but he gives them a wonderful family that's 100 times as large as the one they left. There are many blessings in this life here and now for those who are followers of Jesus. But more than that, the very fact that the followers of Jesus weep now, that we are rejected now, that we are hated now, reviled as evil now, that we suffer now, in itself is actually the cause of genuine and true rejoicing. Because it confirms the great hope we have for the future. Again, look how Jesus puts it, verse 23 Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, he says, because great is your reward in heaven. For that's how their fathers treated the prophets. And so the ultimate paradox of being a Christian is that unlike the rest of the world, which has no hope when the suffering comes, it is precisely at the point of suffering where our future hope can't help but bubble to the surface all the more and therefore causes us to rejoice all the more. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he was with Silas, locked up in jail, would be singing hymns and songs. It's why Peter and the other apostles who had been flogged by the Jewish council of the Sanhedrin went out rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace on account of Jesus' name. The kingdom of God now is about the suffering and the persecution. If anyone wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. Yet it is suffering coupled with deep and genuine rejoicing. Christian rejoicing is not the absence of hardship, but the sure hope of the end of hardship. I think that's worth repeating. Christian rejoicing is not the absence of hardship, but the sure hope of the end of hardship. Now, having given, uh, having given this teaching to his disciples... Jesus himself, and you notice this even as you just look at the page on the Bible, in the exact same way he kind of gives the teaching, now proceeds to reinforce his teaching by giving the negative, almost in the same format. Um, he shows us that a truly horrible thing would be to think that the kingdom of God has already come in this world. Jesus knows this will be a huge temptation for his followers, so he gives what I think is the strongest and most forceful warnings that words can afford. Look with me, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. 
Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Do you feel the weight of Jesus' powerful, chastising and condemning words? It might be helpful at this point to remember that the man who is so loving that he went to the cross to make wretches like us become children of God, is the man that tells people what they need to hear. I actually find it kind of comforting to know that Jesus anticipates the temptations for his followers and that he therefore gives them this very, very strong warning. Jesus knew they would be tempted to get things completely the wrong way around. And sadly, that is precisely what has happened in many Christian circles and in some ways, including our own. I'm going to talk about that for a bit. Jesus' words, given in love, warn us of a clear and present danger, a present danger for us, for me. See, friends, by worldly standards, everyone in this room is rich. All of us are well-fed. All of us live in luxury. Now, Jesus isn't telling us to go and make a vow of poverty and become homeless. But his words directly challenge us to consider if the comforts of this world are the things that deep down we're holding on to, the things that we're living for. How many times have I thought about the next guitar I want to own and even told you guys about it? How many times have I thought about that compared to, say, how many times have I been insulted or hated for my faith Is it anywhere near as many times as I've thought about the next thing that's going to give me a little bit of worldly comfort? How much does work satisfaction or job satisfaction factor into the way we think about our vocations, our jobs? If you can find satisfaction in your work, you definitely should. As a matter of fact, the Bible even tells you that. You read that in Ecclesiastes. But it's so easy for us to make an idol out of a good thing, such as being satisfied as well. To focus all our time and energy in getting enjoyment in this life, such that we're left without any time and energy to focus on the next, to pursue the next. Woe to us if we have already received our comfort now, because that'll be all we get. Now, Jesus' teaching here also reinforces the truth that Christians need to be people who sharpen their skills at working out what is right and what is wrong, what is helpful and what is unhelpful. In other words, we need to be people who exercise discernment. That's what discernment means, working out what's right and wrong. God wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, he says in Romans, so that we can test and approve what God's will is. All Christians exercise discernment. We work out whether stuff's right or wrong. But one of the things I think Christians often forget is that biblical discernment is not just about working out what's right and wrong, but also being able to work out the difference between what's right and what's almost right. I think that's where we get into real trouble. I'll give you an example of this. This week, I read the following words in a book written by a pastor of a a large church. He wrote, and the words will be on the screen, 
Never accept the mindset that persecution and suffering are the will of God. They are the weapons of the devil, who is hell-bent on distracting you from God's amazing plan for your life. Now, I would love that to be true. As a matter of fact, in many ways, it almost is. It is almost true. For those who trust in Jesus, God certainly is for us and not against us. He gave his one and only son. Jesus died to pay the price for our sin, our offence. That's extraordinary loving. God is for us. And he does have an amazing plan for our lives. The problem is, I then look at the Bible and I find out that the Bible assumes that there are actually times when persecution and suffering is the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator whilst doing good. No pastor who takes the word of God seriously could in good conscience write that quote. The Bible helps me discern that that is wrong. The Bible tells me over and over again, as a matter of fact, that false teaching is going to be everywhere. False teaching is going to be everywhere until Jesus returns. Christians must be vigilant and we must protect ourselves by becoming increasingly familiar, not with what the preacher says, but with what the Word of God says. Now, I heard from Stacey that the Equip Women's Conference uh, last year was preaching through 1 Corinthians 7, and just as we heard before, that this year they preached through 8 and then 9. In other words, that conference is slowly going through a book of the Bible systematically. Ladies, that is a good women's conference to be going to. It says the Word of God is what we tease. Not what's on the mind of the preacher. Whatever's next in the Word of God, that's what we're going to be talking about. It's not what I was inspired to think about and talk about today. It's what the Word of God is going to be. No matter how quirky and silly there might be things in women's conferences, and I can only imagine what they're like sometimes. <laughs> there must be all sorts of things that women complain about. As a matter of fact, I know there are. One of my lecturers at Moore College said, oh, Ben, you think, you think blokes complain. You should see the comment cards we get at women's conferences. They are bitter. <laughs> oh, Okay. Regardless of whatever, I'm never going to be a problem for me, I'm not going to go to one. But regardless of that, if they are teaching through the Word of God, that means they uphold the Word of God. This isn't a, here are a few of my favourite things and I hope you feel really good. This is a, here's what the Word of God is saying, for better or for worse. That's a good women's conference to be going to. Are you all still with me? Yeah, good. Uh, you see on the, the outline there, the last thing I've written is practical applications. I'll just give you a few thoughts on how Jesus' very positive and very negative teaching about the kingdom of God being the, the then rather than the now uh, can apply to us. The first one you see I've written there is retirement. One of the things that our culture tells us to do is make sure you've got good super, make sure you've got a good job so you can have a wonderful, relaxing, happy retirement. The dream is the beachfront property, right, where you can relax and rest. That's the stupidest idea I've ever heard of. You've already got the world's best retirement plan. It's called being around the throne of God in heaven with Jesus for all eternity, where you lack nothing, where there's no mourning, crying, pain or anything like that. A retiree is someone who's 
stopped working at their job or their profession, whatever it is. But Christians don't retire. We don't stop serving God. As a matter of fact, I heard recently of one of the, great, the, uh, the most uh, wonderful servants uh, that God has raised up uh, in our time and culture is a guy named John Chapman who preached the gospel on his deathbed to a friend that had come to visit him. He gave him a sermon a couple of days before he died. That guy never retired, not from preaching the gospel, not from serving Christ. Retirement's just one of those little worldly things. Don't put all your eggs in that basket, though. I've been to a funeral of a man who had just retired and had a heart attack, and his wife and him were looking forward to spending all their time together, and they were cut short. Praise God, both he and they uh, were devoted followers of Jesus, and they, or she, took that understandably very badly, but also very well. We don't grieve as others grieve because she knows she's going to see him again in their ultimate retirement home. The second thing is money. Money is one of the best litmus tests of uh, how our lives are spiritually. I know that because it's all throughout the Bible. Um, Don't invest in your comfort when you can invest in the kingdom. Invest in your life. You've got to live, right? And you've got to enjoy things that God gives. There's only no problem. Please don't hear me being a killjoy, right? How many guitars do I own for, right? So am I contradicting myself? No. <laughs> but I didn't buy one that cost four or $5,000. I couldn't bring myself to do that. Not because I'm especially godly, but I just think, well, they're all going to burn one day anyway, right? What's the point? God might give me an awesome guitar in heaven or something like that, right? Think about your money. What does your money say? Your use of your money, what does it say about your priorities? Is it saying, this person wants heaps of comfort here and a little bit of God on the side? Or this person is happy to forego some comfort. When they give, it hurts them a little bit because they know that the glory, the peace, the prosperity is in the age to come, not in this one. Thirdly, evangelism. Uh, Evangelism is scary and hard. Everyone, just let let those words permeate for you. Evangelism is scary and hard. Everyone not in agreement. Yes, it's scary and hard. Good, now get out there and do it anyway. Because, we can all acknowledge it, we all know it's hard. Just get out there and do it anyway. Because, think of how awesome it will be to know that under God, we've brought someone along with us to that glorious heavenly reality that we're going to get when Jesus returns. That's pretty cool. That's better than anything, any material thing I could invest my money in now, right? Think of how joyful it will be to have other people come and they, hey, we're not condemned by the wrath of God. We're actually saved because Jesus paid for us. And you told me about that. And, and here I am. And here we are. That'll be pretty sweet. Lastly, of course, how does this affect our relationships? Relationships are an extraordinarily good thing that God has given, but they can also be things that tie us in terms of our comfort to this world in such a way that detracts from the next. Um, One of the big problems that Israel had during their time in captivity in Babylon was that when God finally released them and let them go back to Jerusalem, some of them wanted to stay because they'd married with Babylonians who have different gods and they had successful businesses. So they didn't come back to Jerusalem, which is why when Babylon got absolutely smashed, it was bad news for them and good news for those that came. Um, I have to tell my youth group kids 
probably once a term at the moment, that the Bible says it's not right. It is not okay for Christians to date and marry non-Christians. But I have to keep saying that because that always grates. There's always someone who's very unhappy about me saying that. Uh, But the Bible teaches unequivocally that Christians are to marry Christians. And therefore, as the Christian dates the non-Christian, sometimes people say, oh, well, you might influence him, they might get the gospel. That's utter rubbish. As the Christian dates the non-Christian, they actually say to them, Jesus is Lord, except when you don't want him to be. That makes it very hard for the non-Christian to actually get the gospel. Now, please understand that as I say that, I'm speaking to a crowd of people, I'm not speaking to individual people, right? Individually, I know there's different circumstances, there's, there's pastoral concerns, I'm speaking to a crowd, not an individual at that point. But the point still stands, relationships can get in the way of us living for the kingdom. I've said some hard things. It may be the case at Jono's discretion that he allows a question time. Uh, And, uh, yeah, there is. Okay, good. Uh, Let me pray briefly, and then uh, I'll encourage you to challenge question to not be afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stern words of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. We thank you that he anticipates our problems and therefore meets our need by telling us what we need to hear. Father, help us in this area, in this age, in this culture where it's just so easy to live for comfort in this world. Help us, Father, in our standing up for Jesus uh, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him, to choose the narrow path, to endure the hardship to even rejoice in the suffering, the insult, the hatred that comes our way as we put our trust in Jesus and we live for him daily. Father, may any of the words that I've spoken this morning that are not pleasing or helpful to you simply fall to the floor. But Father, uh, where there has been truth and, uh, and godly conviction, uh, please impact both myself and everyone here in our hearts. Help us to repent where repentance is needed. Uh, and help us to continue to, uh, uh, to seek to sit under the authority of your word uh, in the choices we make. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in question times, there's always an awkward, deadly silence because people think, oh, that's a dumb question, or I'm too afraid to ask. Uh, just get over it and ask anyway. Good on you, Mr. Yeah, Mark. Excellent question. I'll tell you what I do. Um, There's a scale that exists in my mind, which is, this is helpful for serving God's kingdom. Now, that scale is pretty broad because me drinking coffee this morning was helpful for serving God's kingdom. Because I can't stand instant, I've snobbishly got the... Although... I haven't gone to Campos either. I got my beans, I got Aldi beans at the moment, right? So you can see there's this kind of thing that's played out. Well, I, I want to serve God's kingdom. I have my own, you know, selfish and sinful person that's also fighting in the background. And, but I'm not going to be an ascetic and think, well, if I deny myself, I'm really godly. That's stupid. Um, and so I make a decision, sort of, sort of imagining that scale. How much will this help serve? Now, it so happens with... Um, musical instrument, it, I enjoy it, I love it, right? It definitely serves me. It's definitely my hobby, my relaxing thing. But 
it so happens that I also do use them uh, to serve God's kingdom as well. So I don't feel so like, and so I think, well, what's my income? What's sort of the balance about how good this is for me and how good this for others? For me, that's just meant I'm not going to buy a $5,000 guitar, but I might buy a $1,000 guitar. It's that kind of thing. Now, you're right in saying you can't have a hard and fast because two people uh, could do something that looks totally opposite, both for very good motivation, depending on their circumstance. Um, with cars, it's interesting. Ask yourself the question, how much is this a status symbol, which is serving me? And how much is this, well, it's going to get me to church and I'm going to you know, serve my wife and my kids or whatever it is. And Just don't be afraid of asking yourself the hard questions that presuppose your sinfulness. So these are two things. How's it going to serve other people? And I've got to factor in my sinfulness and, and see if I can make a godly decision. Uh, I could say a third thing, which is really obvious. Pray like mad. Uh, beautiful, Joy. <laughs> they went to church at night. Uh, I think that's wonderful. I'm sort of sad to say, and again, this is a bit cutting, that in my experience, what I've seen of a lot of people that do opt for Sunday sport or Sunday fitness is not actually about evangelism, because, you know, the... The fun runs on that day and that's what I want to do. Uh, I think that's, that doesn't make sense uh, of uh, seeking the good of God's kingdom. However, uh, you're right, you, you, you also don't want to make a sort of a hard and fast rule about something like that either. Uh, there's definitely times, I mean, they're few and far between, but there's times where I've thought, yep, yeah, it actually makes more sense for me to do this even than to, to show up uh, to, to meet and serve my Christian family. Now, I want to put meeting and serving my Christian family is incredibly high priority, but periodically, occasionally, something will trump that, uh, and normally for good reason. So I'm not going to judge the person there. Yep. So in each of these questions in our class, so how do you think you could advise this Uh, they're all part of God's plan, whether or not the devil has a hand in them or not as well. Uh, so, an uh, excellent example would be, uh, God planned for Satan to attack Job. And when that attack happened, was it part of God's giving him a trial? Yes. Was it Satan attacking Job? Yes. Uh, nothing is outside God's sovereign control or sovereign plan, whether or not he lets uh, evil spiritual stuff have its natural way against us to an extent or not, that's, I don't think, it's neither here nor there. I mean, God doesn't need those things to bring about suffering. I mean, already as a follower of Jesus, I'm to take up my cross daily and follow him. I've already chosen the path of suffering. Uh, whether or not uh, God allows that to happen through sort of uh, demonic influence or something, um, I don't think matters all that much. When you're suffering, you're going, yep, this is a trial. I don't worry about where it comes from. I go, let me trust God. Let me rejoice that I know there'll be an end to it. And I suffer differently to the way that the non-Christian suffers. And let me praise God and cling to him throughout that process. Uh, if I sit there trying to work out, is this a demonic thing or a situational thing? It's kind of going to sidetrack me from, from the way I should be thinking about it. Having said that, I do believe that Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we need to be very wary of anyone saying that they've kind of got demons in them or attacking them or something like that. I, I, I don't, I'm fairly persuaded that's uh, not quite the case for Christians. I think there is demonic influence, but I don't think it's right to say that if you're a Christian, you can be somehow possessed by a demon or something like that. Is that helpful? Good. There was one over here, yep. That's right. 
That's because wisdom and godliness overlap but are not equated. You can be wise and still be ungodly. Wisdom and godliness are very strongly related but not equated. While I'm on that, wisdom and intelligence also are related but never to be equated. There are very intelligent people who are very, very foolish. Uh, Solomon was actually a bit of both. He was both ungodly and foolish and the wisest person that had ever been at that time. Uh, And that's basically because sin is not corrected by wisdom. You can't argue someone out of their sinfulness or, or educate someone away from sinfulness. Only the Spirit of God upon someone who receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, can actually change the heart, regardless of how wise or foolish uh, they may be. We've got one more. The boss is getting up. <laughs> Last one. Last one, yeah, yeah, go for it, mate. Uh, the Bible anticipates that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, it actually says you uphold that marriage. Uh, so I uphold and honour the marriages where there's a Christian and a non-Christian. If you're a Christian in this church and you're married to a non-Christian, do not for one second say, oh, well, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not the same as everyone, I'm sort of like not on the same spiritual level. No, that's a load of rubbish. Uh, As a matter of fact, God will even go so far as to say that the non-Christian spouse, for the sake of the the legitimacy and the godliness of the children, will be sanctified, which is a big word that means made holy. Now, that does not mean they are saved. But you actually see it in a lot of households where there's a Christian, non-Christian marriage, Often, not always, but often, the non-Christian spouse at at least lives kind of in such a way that enables the Christian spouse to raise their children uh, in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's super important. It may be the case that in a a non-Christian pairing where one becomes a follower of Jesus, that the other Christian rejects them because of that. In other words, they divorce or they abandon the marriage because their spouse has now become a Christian, that means the Christian spouse is actually free to... to, It's not morally wrong for them to be divorced and they may remarry. They've been abandoned because of their faith in Christ. Uh, Yep. Thanks.